Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to the actress Eileen Atkins. During the course of a 56-year career, the BAFTA, Emmy and multiple Olivier award-winning actress has earned the reputation, alongside her friends and contemporaries Maggie Smith and Judi Dench, of being one of the great dames of her generation. First and foremost a renowned stage actress, Eileen has also appeared in such popular films and TV series as The Crown, Cold Mountain, Paddington and Dot Martin. She was also the co-creator, along with her friend Jean Marsh, of Upstairs Downstairs and The House of Elliot, and turned a lifelong admiration of Virginia Woolf into the screenplay of Mrs Dalloway. The daughter of a dressmaker and an electric meter reader from Tottenham, hers is a story of determined passion. Now nearing the end of her ninth decade, that same passion fuels her to this day. Vibrant, funny and fizzing with mischievous intelligence, she was genuinely better company during the afternoon that I spent with her in her cottage overlooking the River Thames than the sparkiest 18-year-old might have been. I don't feel that anything is worth saying unless it's the truth, she says with a twinkle in her eye. I hope you enjoy listening. I'll have to cut them all out. Or I'll be um, not vaccinated, I'll be (laughs) cancelled. Very different words, I mean, vaccination and (laughs) cancelling. I've been waiting. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll start now. You sure? Ready? Yep. Can we start with money? Yes. Yes. So, you were raised in a working class household. Yes. And money, I think, was always an issue was it was it something you were aware of as a child absolutely i knew that that we that, that we only ever had enough money you know on thursdays we couldn't have cakes a cake because we wouldn't have get my father's paper till friday night and uh, yes i was totally aware that we didn't have very much money, but it didn't worry me because we seemed to have enough money to get through the week and I was given food. It was true, it was terrible food, but I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know a sugar sandwich was just about the worst thing you could have for lunch every day. So I was aware of it, but it didn't worry me. And did it worry your parents? Were you aware of it worrying them? Yes. My, my mother worked so hard all the time. I mean, she sat sewing all day. And she was so worried about money, she did it till she was 90. I mean, you know, uh, she was always looking for work. She was a seamstress. But her, her great cleverness was that she did smocking, you know, for yeah. babies' dresses. Yeah. And um, so... As I got to know people in the in the theatre, I used to get her. Um, I, I believe she she certainly she made uh, smocked dresses for Bob Monkhouse's grandchildren, things like that. You know, um, so but she was work. She was looking for work right up to the to the end, and she did work. She sat and she ran the house, and she sat smocking all day. Gosh, and your dad. 
he's a, an electric meter reader and um, around Hackney, in that area, and um, of, which was, of course, very poor and um, not very... I can only think of the silly word salubrious <laughs> then, but um, he he was quite happy. He knew he he my father had been in service, so and he would have liked to have stayed in service. I think really a part of him. He was quite happy with the way the world was in all in different areas, and there were posh people who had money, and he was quite happy for them to have worry of all their money yeah. <laughs> as long as he had a, a permanent job so of course he f he would have felt safer being a servant all his life and why why did he stop being a servant because you can't be married and have a, and he he married a woman who then uh, died in childbirth and so that's why he and my mother got married because his first wife had died Yes, and he he was a lodger in my mother's house because my mother, my mother's mother ran a boarding house, which my mother also had to work in, and um, he asked my mother to be the uh, if she would look after the child he was left with, and my mother he cause he had a three year old daughter when his wife died and the baby died. So he was left with a three-year-old and he asked my mother if she would look after a child and my mother said, only if you marry me. Fair enough. And that was the kind of marriage it was. Whereas my mother was very stern and practical and cross most of the time, my father was the other half. He was always thought life was quite wonderful, but he never had any money. But it didn't matter. No, it was a terribly exciting moment when the war finished. The, 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 the week the war ended, my father used to do the football pools mm. every week and we won £100. Well, I found out that that then was worth about 8400 Which was a lot. Which is amazing on the council estate. And, of course, we hadn't had any holidays during the war and we all had a holiday in... Um, Oh, uh, Westcliff, not Southend. My mother always wanted to be one up. She couldn't bear, she hoped nobody ever found out that my father had been in service, ever. So she always wanted to be one up on everybody else. And so we went to Westcliff, not Southend. And we, had, we actually had a terrible holiday, but I didn't think so, because I saw the sea for the first time. And, uh, Why was it terrible? What the holiday? Well, yeah. <laughs> we were, in, you know, those. Are, I, I don't think unless you're my age, you don't remember how terrible these boarding houses were, and we went quite a cheap place. You know, we had a very gloomy woman who ran the boarding house, and she gave us breakfast, and then they shoved you out. Then you mustn't stay in your room, and it rained every day. <laughs> so, um, and as we left i remember we went to see uh, a movie all together my brother was with us too he was about 17 and mortified at having a holiday with his parents and i think we saw a film called a yankee at the court of king arthur 
And I loved it. I loved anything. I was going to the movies, which I hadn't been to much either. And um, as we came out, my mother said, that's it. We're not having a holiday like this ever again. Uh, we're spending money all the time and having stay to stay out of the house. And uh, We're going from now on, it's holiday camps. And from now on, then on, it was holiday camps. So my early teen years was always once a week, once a year, one week in a holiday camp. And then, you know, my, my father went to work when he was 12. She went to work when she was 13. Gosh. My sister went to work when she was 14. My brother started work when he was 15. And I was the only one allowed not to do, not to work until I was 19. Although you went to work and singing and dancing when you were seven. Oh, it's true, yes. I mean, that was good money for the family. Yeah. Is, was that part of your mum's motivation? So, so you'd, you'd started learning to dance when you were three or four. Yeah. And by the time you were seven, you were baby Eileen. Yeah. Oh, and by the time I was, yeah, five. <laughs> five, and, then, five and dancing in working men's clubs and things of an evening. Yeah. And was her motivation financial? Getting you to do that, do you think? No. No? No. It was... Um, it was... She felt she was a very big, plain woman. She used to always go on to me about how ungraceful she was. She didn't use the word ungraceful. She says, I'm a clumsy woman. And she was fat. She was a very, very fat woman. And she was just so thrilled to have this delicate little blonde daughter and she was very dark um, that she just she wanted to relive herself through me and so I was going to be delicate and I was going to be pretty and I was going to be able to dance and uh, I was going to be everything she'd wanted to be as a child and um I think she quite liked the idea of being a little star's mother and it gave her a sort of position that, oh, that child... You know, she was inordinately proud of me, mm. but in the wrong way, if you see what I mean. Mm. I mean, it, it didn't do me any good to be so adored. But your later success... She must have been very proud of, or not? Not at all. No. No, I disappointed them terribly, both of them. Because my father was, you know, loved the music hall and everything, and was, was longing that I might be on the stage and do a musical or something, but neither of them had ever been to a play, and they didn't understand what, almost what plays were. They knew that posh people did them, and that was people in evening dress smoking. That was a play. And they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And as for Shakespeare or anything like that, you know. So I did, I just did nothing but disappoint them from the age of about 12 or 13 on. When you gave up I gave dancing. up dancing. I wouldn't do any more. I think it was 13 that was the last time I, I did the um, working men's clubs, the school gave them, said she must stop, it's not fair on her to come in and work being so tired from the night before. And um, and then, I, 
she was all right about school plays, but she was, she just, they, they were very disappointed in them. Yeah, and I used to get tickets for them, and then they would sit being very... They'd come around backstage, and I'd introduce them to people, but they... I mean, the high point for my mother, the high, high point, was when I was 12, and I was in a professional pantomime at Clapham Empire and Kilburn Empire, and she was the chaperone. She got the job of chaperone with all these little girls of 12, and... She thought, this is it. This is, this is the life. My daughter is going to be a dancer and I'm going to be backstage and, I, and everybody's going to come backstage and tell her how wonderful she is and I'll say, and I'm the mother. And, and that, that was it. That was the epitome of her joy with me. And after that, it was back to school and then it was me saying, I don't want to do any more dancing. I'm going to be an actress. And then they just got more and more and more depressed. They were probably intimidated by it, truthfully. Oh, yes. Yes, it was very hard Theatres for Theatres for toffs, I guess. Yes, and they felt out of it and they didn't... Uh, you know, it was just horrible. They didn't understand. They bored by Shakespeare, which I absolutely understand. If you're not, you have to be shown the way with things like that. Mm. And I dare say I didn't behave all that well myself. I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember, but I expect I did. Did you... Were you allowed to keep any of the money you earned? Oh, no, fair enough. You, want, you know, I wanted a bicycle, so put money towards a bicycle. If I wanted something very much, I didn't want very, I didn't want very much. I didn't play with dolls at all when I was young. The only thing I ever wanted was a book. When I found books, life was heaven because there were no books at home. So I only spent money on books. I didn't even like clothes when I was a kid because my mother endlessly made me these frilly clothes all the time. <laughs> and I hated them and I only wanted to be in shorts because there's no such thing as a T-shirt in those days either. You know, um, so I grew up spending... Any money I had on books, and that upset my father. Because? Because he didn't want me to be that kind of educated, He uh, and he felt out of it. And he, he used to tell me the most wonderful stories himself. He had a great imagination. And, um, he used, he, and then, well, when, when I, I... I must have been... Well, young enough for him to... I remember I was in his arms standing at a bus stop in Edmonton and I read the Bovril advertisement. It wasn't just Bovril is good for you, I can't remember it now. And I read it out slowly and he honestly looked at my mother as if, you know, he just found out I'd got a terrible disease. Oh, and he yeah. said... Oh, she can read. He didn't want me because he wanted to tell me all his stories and now I would have my nose in a book, which is exactly what happened. Oh, could he read? I'm, I'm not... Yes, he could read. He used, to, he used to get out the newspaper and read it, but I'm none too sure. 
how well he did read. He certainly never read a book in my life. I, I've never noticed him read a book. I think he knew enough to fill in forms and all that kind of thing. And inadvertently, you ended up getting an education, a good education, um, at a private school that was paid for by your dance teacher. Yes, the first one. And then I got a scholarship to grammar school, which I, I still today, I can't bear it when, that we haven't got grammar schools. And I know all the reasons about it. I've, I've heard all the people saying now, but I failed 11 plus and I felt terrible. But can we see the other side? Yes. It is the only way, the only way, a clever working class child can move out and do what they want to do. It is the only way. So I'm sorry about the few of you that didn't get the 11th plus and felt awful, but there's no need to feel awful. That must have been something in your family or that you had because my own brother did win the 11th plus. And after a year at the grammar school, he went to the headmaster and said he knew he didn't have an academic brain and he knew he wanted to be a technician he wanted to go to a technical school. And the man wouldn't let him. The headmaster wouldn't let him change schools. But, I mean, so it, it, can't, it can't have been automatic that you thought you were a total failure. So I am sorry for those who don't pass the 11+. Plus, and what must happen is that we must appreciate craftsmen Yes. And technicians yes. a whole lot more, which I certainly do. I need a lot in this house at the moment. And, you know, you can't get one for love or money. Um, so, you know, it mustn't be... We must stop thinking that the academic brain is the only one. Yes. Appreciate the others, and then we won't be so driven apart. Also, we mustn't... It's a total aside, but we probably shouldn't think failure is a disaster because Absolutely. actually the sooner one learns to fail the better right I think because you're going to yeah <laughs> and absolutely failure is a is a time to give you time to sit down and think oh god that didn't work um oh well what went wrong and what and was it a good thing anyway <laughs> so i know of course you're going to fail and fail again so it, there shouldn't be so much on it, but there you are. It's proud parents, and they'd rather say their child had a, an academic brain than actually he's a brilliant carver or, you yeah. know, what, what are they, what, what's that called? Carpenter. Yes, that's what my grandfather was, a brilliant, he was a carpenter. So, you know, that, well, so... So, when you were at school, correct me if I'm wrong, your mum wanted you to get elocution lessons. Yes. But couldn't afford to pay for the elocution no. lessons. And along comes Mr Burton. Yes. Can you tell me about Mr Burton? Mr Burton was incredible. Incredible. Um, he was... I knew him because he was our what we called divinity. It was uh, religion was called divinity at that school, 
and he was our divinity teacher and he'd been a priest and he'd been chucked out from the priesthood and he'd married and he'd had two children and he was divorced and he was 32 when I met him and I thought he was an old man you know obviously <laughs> and um and he was just interested in me and I realize now it was very but this is only obviously I didn't think of it then I, I it was like Pygmalion you know I mean he picked <laughs> gutter you know a little cockney girl he could see something in and decided to make her into what he thought that she might like to be. And so here I was asking. So he just stopped me in the corridor one day after my mother had turned down another teacher who'd said it would be seven and six a week for half an hour. And he just stopped me and said, you, here, I hear you want to learn how to speak properly. And I said, well, my mother's out. And he said, uh, well, I'll do it for nothing, but you have to come whenever I feel like it, whenever I want it, um, and, you know, I, I won't charge anything, but you, 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 you have to obey me about coming or not, you know, or I, I won't do it. And then it ended up with me staying night after night with him. And I found out after I'd left school that the other teachers used to do a bit of a patrol outside the room yeah. because we used to always work in the art room and um, they used to look in to see that he was behaving, I suppose, but it never entered my head and quite frankly I don't think it entered his either, although he did marry a woman younger than me <laughs> <laughs> after I left school. But he uh, taught you, well, as well as how to speak, he taught you about Shakespeare and life and... He taught... I, I'm going to start crying. Just... I'm, I'm going... I, I can do nothing but cry when people ask me. Because... Oh, I'm sorry, I Because... No, don't be sorry, because it's joyous. Because he gave me so much. He gave me my life. Mm. And when I think... I don't think I would have had much of a life uh, without him. Because he just, he gave me the confidence to go for what I wanted. And, and he made me, it, it, without his teaching, I wouldn't have even got to a drama school. If I'd just gone to a drama school, if, if I'd known, if I'd known about drama schools and said, you know, I want to audition, I wouldn't have known how to audition. I wouldn't have known anything without him. And he primed me. I was 12 when we started having the lessons and I, I had to leave school when I was 16 because my parents said, if you're going to drama school, uh, he explained it all to me. And he, they said, well, we, there's no point in keeping you there to 18 and then you go to drama school as well. All this was beyond their thought anyway. Even me going to 16 was a bit dicey. You know, why couldn't I do as my brother and leave at 15 and go working. straight on the stage and earn some money? We're back to money again. And um, he, he said, no, she must get her school certificate or matriculation, as it was called then, uh, to get to a drama school. So she must stay till she's 16. But he knew it was no use pushing them any further. So I went at 16 to drama school. 
he always instilled into me that you had to be very exceptionally good as an actress. He didn't even use the word good, he would say. You have to have an extra thing. You have to be brilliant. Otherwise, it's not worth going in, into the theatre. There's no use going into it and just being good. That, that isn't, there's not, no point in that. So he said, we have to know if you've got that extra thing. He said, I think you're good, but have you got this... In, in fact, he was nice enough, so I thought, I thought I was very good. He would never have suggested it if he hadn't thought I was very good. But she said, we'll apply for RADA for a scholarship. And if you get the scholarship, we'll know you're very special. And if you don't get the scholarship, then you must take a teacher's course somewhere. And that way, because he knew my, I was going to get no money from my parents at all, that way, the first way a scholarship will pay for it, and the other way, we can get a grant for you to be a teacher. And I don't know how many, I think it's something like 300 people young people applied for the scholarship to RADA and I got down to the last three. I'd been back for two lots of auditions and then I didn't get it. And I've never checked and to see who did get it that year. Yes, I wonder who <laughs> I never checked. I, I just can't do so. I just can't lift up the phone and do it because it must be down there somewhere. Anyway, so very, very grudgingly... I went on a teacher's course at Guildhall and then I, I, w I was depressed and then as soon as I got there I realised that nobody would notice if I did the acting course. So I did. Brilliant. And I wasn't found out till the end of my third year. Yeah, he was a nutter. He was a nutter but he was wonderful to me. That's I saw none of... You see, I got... I knew he was a nutter. I knew he was thought to be eccentric. Even the way he walked and everything was eccentric. His gown was always billowing and he, was always, he looked like an eagle all the time. And I never felt any sexual feelings towards him. And I'm not too sure. I, I, he probably felt something towards me. He was very um, possessive of me. I'm very worried that I might marry a boy at school and start... He hated me going out with boys. But he probably did have a bit of a thing about me. Sure. But um, but also he probably wanted you to succeed and marrying a boy and having a baby wouldn't have... That, 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 that's what he was frightened. He thought was frightened that I would just go out with the boy I fancied at school yeah. and we'd marry and I'd have a baby straight away and that would be it. That'd be it. And if, if I'd done that, I would have been a bank manager's wife. I don't think enough about money as I should do. And I can always remember an actress called Sylvia Coleridge who came to live for a little while with me and my first husband, Julian Glove. And she said to me one day about money, it's extraordinary to me that you come from a family where you didn't have anything and you were always wondered if there was enough but you don't in any way hoard it and you love spending money and you don't seem to think about it. Now, you have to think about it in the end. You have to think, had I got enough money to do so and so. But I 
think I probably think about money less than most actors. Ask my agent. <laughs> have your have your professional decisions ever been informed by money? Uh, a few times in my second marriage, when the wonderful Potty Bill, who was my husband, uh, got us into really serious trouble when he'd started films and not got the money to finish. So, uh, I have done some real shit because I've suddenly thought, oh, I've got to put something in. We've got to get the money for this. Um, but mostly, I think I'm sensible about it. But, I mean, I've never in my life had a million. And now I know that a million is nothing. And most of my co-stars are not even a star but most of my my sort of level do have a million I mean I now have it in my house so there's money in the house but I mean the only person the only times I've got affected by it is when as I say my second husband Bill uh, was very wild with it and I suppose you've always been able to, if you hit the doldrums, you've always, always been employed, really, haven't you? you I can all, I, I, yes. I, I mean, there are times when I haven't worked, but it's been choice. Yes. I Which is a great privilege for an actor, because it's not the norm. Huge privilege. Huge privilege. You did a lot of jobs to fund your way. I've read that you were, worked in a laundrette. Were you a bus conductress? Uh, no, I turned down the you bus. Turned I, was, I was outraged at being. <laughs> I you drew the it. line. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you've done a lot of different jobs. Oh yeah, I've done worked uh, in the post shops, office, shops, receptionist. What uh, did the post office at the, uh, the Christmas weekend? Um, Christmas weeks, not weekend for weeks. Um, usherette. Um, I, I was talking to Olivia Coleman the other day about it. And we realised that when I was being the laundrette assistant in Oxford, she was cleaning the houses. Oh, that's true. So, uh, you know, I know we, there must have been a gap. It wasn't the same year. But we both were in the same city doing very, very menial tasks. I think, in a way, looking back, it, it wasn't such a bad thing I had to do that. The worst, the worst was always doing the ideal home exhibition and being on the stand and I was on the baked bean, Heinz baked bean stand once. And all I could remember was old ladies coming up and saying to me, will you ask them to make a really small tin just for one? And of course, it's what I'm looking for all the time now. I, I say, no, no, I only want a small tin. <laughs> do they not make those small they ones do anymore? They do they now. They do now. They do now. But I think it was something to do with me because I did... I did write a, put in a form to Heinz saying lots of people ask for small tins and they're old ladies and they're on their own and they're eating on their own. <laughs> Whenever I open a small tin of baked beans now, I think, oh, there you are, you did that. okay yeah to sex oh 
it goes back to Mr. Burton, actually. There's a brilliant story in your autobiography, Will She Do, which is great, in which you talk about overhearing him talking to an actor um, who'd come to watch a play you were in. Oh, yeah. And he said, I'm a bit worried. She's very talented, but she's not classically beautiful. And the actor said, yes, but she's sexy. Yeah. He said, again, he saved my life. <laughs> So that's, that's an interesting thing, because you are someone, you are very sexy. Have you felt it in your life? Uh, well, because I did hear that, obviously, it did drop nicely into my mind. And I think it gave me a lot of confidence, because really, it's only the very stupid that think that sexuality is something to do with how pretty or beautiful you are. And anybody who knows anything about sex will know that that isn't it. It is in either sex. You don't, someone is either sexy or they're not. And who the hell knows what it is? I mean, if you could sell it in a bottle, it would sell well. But you you don't know what it is. And I tend to think with men, when I think, well, that man's sexy and that one is, I tend to think he just likes women. And I think I just like men. Um, I, I, I like their company as well. Um... I must say, these days, my heart dips a bit when everybody's a female. <laughs> Things which, which, I mean, I'm glad we've won through. I'm a big feminist. I'm glad we're winning the, the battle. But all the same. Endless women. Endless women. Um, I do, I really like men. And, um, and a lot of the fun seems, I, I mean, I would hate to be young now. I think the fun's gone out of it. In what sense? Monogamy. Well, <laughs> everybody is so po-faced about it now. Um, nobody seems to be gloriously enjoying it. And I, I, when you think of the poor things now, when I see, I had a, I, you know, I had a, a, a dresser, a pretty, pretty girl, with a stud in her tongue. And I said, well, why have you done that? And she said, oh, men love it. Well, I think, good God, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, I mean, what's wrong with just sex? <laughs> and I still don't understand. I think that's what's happened. I don't understand why, what's wrong with just sex, the thing that nature worked out to uh, make people the earth, as Benedict says, we must people the earth. Um, and I, I mean, I, I understand if you're gay, yes, you like a different kind of sex, that's fine. I don't care what anybody does, but I just think all these things now that girls worry about, have they had this done, have they had that done, that will make them... So, and to me, it's absolutely nothing to do with sex. And I don't know, I find it... I, well, I'm just, I w I'm just terribly glad 
I'm not 17 or 18 now, or even 27 or 37. Well, you I, don't use the internet, so you wouldn't be able to do internet dating, which would probably limit you, because that's what everybody seems to do now. That's what I realise, and I think that is somehow so soulless. I know. I mean, I'm wrongly quoted in Richard Eyre's diary. Just, just, I've just been sent a book of quotations, and they put it in there too. I'm wrongly quoted as saying to him, one day when we were doing the Night of the Iguana, uh, we, and I was talking about age, and I, and I was about, I don't know, 60-something then, I suppose. And I said, oh, it's just sad that these days I don't look round the cast at a first reading and think, oh, I wonder who I'll have an affair with on the tour. And, and he, he said, she, uh, she looked round and she said to me, oh, it's such a relief not to have to think who I'll have an affair with. Well, it's not a... No, it's <laughs> no, most um, disappointing. But it is horrible when old women talk about... I, I just had a very good time with sex, and I, I just think you should really try not to... I mean, I've had to speak about it a bit in the book, but um, people don't want to know about old women's sex lives in the past. It is interesting because, you you know, a lot of your early relationships were in the 50s and you write about this so interestingly about the fact that you couldn't go anywhere. You know, you had to get engaged to somebody. No, you had to get engaged. That was awful. That's completely... This is why the 60s were so fabulous. Yes. I mean, it was fabulous. You were crazy if you didn't take advantage of them. Total change. You were just terrified of getting pregnant in the 50s. That's all you could think about. I mustn't have a baby. I mustn't have a baby, you know. And it was much less, people were much less, like you say, po-faced about it. I mean, you've been very open about having had relationships when you were married or with married men, and you're not apologetic for it. And now everyone takes it all desperately seriously. Yes, I I really am unhappy about that. I mean, the last thing you should divorce someone for is a few nights with someone or or a very brief affair. I mean, maybe if they you know they've got a permanent woman somewhere else, maybe you should think seriously <laughs> that you should look at it. But to divorce and fuck up children, uh, I mean, the children should really, in a way, come first. There is is ridiculous was not having children a choice it wasn't it wasn't I know in my head it was a choice but it looks as though it was just unfortunate because because Julian couldn't have children and then miraculously did have um, Jamie when he married Ida. I think that was an, just an extraordinary and wonderful piece of luck. But because he couldn't... I'd done all my 20s. By the time that marriage came to an end, I really did want to be free, and, and, and my 30s were very free. And then when I married Bill, I mean, people like Miriam Stoppard said to me, oh, I can make you have a better... And I, and I said to Bill, do you want children? He said... I don't think I do, but I mean, obviously, if you got pregnant, I would say yes. But neither of us really wanted to then, so we didn't do anything about it. And then I was too old. But I have to say, 
I truly have never had a regret. I can see quite clearly that it is the joy of most people, most women's lives, not so much men, but they, I can see that it's magical, but I do genuinely do believe I would have resented any child that stopped me working. And I never had, I, not until I married Bill, did I have, and not until I'd been married for him for a couple of years, did I know that it would have been solid, that it was a solid, that marrying him after only knowing him two weeks, you know. I never was in a position, except with Julian, where we were told we couldn't, of solidity for a child. And if I resent anyone in this world, it's women who bring children into the world not knowing how the hell they're going to look after them with no no father. I, I really go upset about that. Mm. I really, really have no regrets. I have a, my dearest friend, Amy Roberts, who does all the clothes for the crown, said to me the other day, she couldn't believe it, she said, how do you really feel about that? Actually, do you really still not mind? Because everybody's got grandchildren around. Mm. That's the thing you kind of miss. You think, oh, it would have been, it would be nice to have some very, you know, teenagery children to take an interest in now. But all that's happened is that I've taken an interest in a few teenagery children. You know, yeah. I mean, that aren't mine. Ones who are in shit because they haven't got fathers. So. Um, no, I really think much as I could see that magic I know there would have been a magic moment when they were born, lots when they but I you I suppose it's what you don't miss what you don't have. You know, it's just that. Absolutely. It's the happy labourer who you say have you know, have you never been abroad? No, never. And he's quite happy. I suppose it is. It, it, it's uh, it's that. But I, and I'm very glad that I've never messed up a child's life. Yeah. And I think I would definitely have messed up whatever I produced. I think I would have messed it up. I know I'd have been like Betty Davis with her child. I just know it. With the poor child, you know, trying to be an actress, and Betty Davis just says to it the night before it's going to do a a test for a film and the girl apparently said would her you know she was going to show it to her mother and Betty Davis just said don't do it you're no good and I know I would I know I would say the same thing even if it was a child of mine I just know I've seen too many actresses be really lousy mothers I mean, of course, there are some actresses that have pulled it off and their kids are all, all right and fine. Mm. But I do think, on the whole, they're a group that don't do too well with children. I didn't know you'd married Bill after two weeks. Yes, that's... wasn't that crazy? Three weeks it might have been, two or three weeks. That's very romantic. Oh, no, it was very silly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was extremely silly.
we, we were in bed when he asked me to marry him. And, and I said, yes. I thought, well, you, you'll feel, you'll remember this tomorrow morning, or I'll remind you, and you'll, you know, you'll wish to God you hadn't said it. And then he just wasn't in the bed in the morning when I woke up. And I thought, he's remembered and he's skipped off. He's skipped off. And then he came back into the house. He said, I went to get, um, sign up for us, you know, get a, uh, what do you do? You, you go to an, and you get... A registry office. Well, register, that's it. Register that we're going to be married. And he said, I'm, it's two weeks' time. So it was nearly three weeks. <laughs> that's amazing. And then I got mumps. Oh. And he was so wonderful to me when I was ill. I thought, oh, I am glad you said yes. This is, this is going to be all right. But I was very nervous for the first few weeks because I thought, but I did have a wonderful no- moment of revenge with the lover on the phone because I knew he would call again to start it all up again because we'd go on for so long, we'd have a row, and then it would all be over. And then he would call again. This was the married lover. This is a married man, the married man. And he happened to call me the day before I was getting married. Bill was still in the bed. The phone, luckily, was in the other room. And I picked up the phone. And he always said, oh, hi. How are you? And I said, well, I'm very well. I'm getting married tomorrow. And it was worth it for the sound he made. It was just worth it. What did he do? He was just horror struck. And I found out from my friends afterwards, oh, he was in a terrible state. And so there was a wonderful... Yes. Yes. It's awful. But revenge is sweet. It is. It just is. And how long were you married to Bill for? Oh... When he died, we were just about 40 years. I mean, Amazing. Ups and, a lot of ups and downs, but um, a lot of crockery thrown in the first year. But I was very glad I married Bill. I'm very glad. We, you know, he, was a, he was a very... What I've always needed is a playmate, really, and some, you know, a supporter. And boy, he supported me. You yeah. know, he, was, he really did think my work was terrific and wasn't jealous of it. Yeah, Crucial. and that's quite hard. Yeah, which another actor would have been. Yeah, you've had a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> good for you, Eileen. Yes. wishy-washy about politics and I know in old age watching what's been going on I really feel I'm very feeble about it because I have been feeble because I've simply voted mostly on issues that affect me so I voted differently each time I've voted for every single I've voted Lib Dem, Labour and Tory in about that order. And it really is just what are they going to do for me, you know. I mean, the last one was all about um, Brexit, which of course I was against. 
and um, I thought I don't look and study enough to see who is good or who might be. I, I voted for Mrs Thatcher at the beginning because we were in such a state with all the strikes. And then I thought, no, this is going to stop. But I mean, I've never really, you really need to research to, before you vote. Yeah. I sometimes think they ought to give us a little exam paper. I mean, democracy is a very weird thing, isn't it? Because it's a lot of people just voting for what they want, really. I can't believe I'm the only person. I, I mean, think everybody only... does, yeah. I mean, the only thing is I'm somebody who will be taxed heavily this year because I've earned a lot this year. But I'm all for being taxed mm. because everybody, everything's in such a mess. Mm. And that I might complain to my um, accountant for, for the income tax. But basically, you know, I think those of us who earn should give a lot more. And I think, you know, if there was any, you know, we are so... It's such an unequal society that it won't be any better here until it is a lot more equal. But it's how do you do it? How how do you how do you make it equal? I don't I don't I don't know. I mean, your, your parents were conservative voters. Oh yes, but that was to do. But that's what I mean. There are plenty of people like my parents who do things for just the look of it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of actors who vote Labour without knowing anything about Labour, you know. Yeah. But if you're an actor, you're supposed to be a socialist, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of it. On the old days, you used to be, they were upper class people, so you used to be, you used to vote Tory. And yeah. now if you're an actor and you vote Tory, you're very weird. So politics is just a performance, a different sort of performance. Yeah, so... Um, um, so my parents just wanted to be one up on the rest. They wanted to be different, and they wanted to pe people to think they had a bit of class. Mm. So to them, having a bit of class was having a Tory poster in the window. I probably am a fraction more conservative now. I'm not going to be one of those raging old... never been one of those raging old socialists who... You know, I've just had to persuade Michael um, Billington, who only has one kidney left, and he thought that, that they've told him there was something wrong with that kidney, and he was still waiting three months with the NHS before going and finding out. I said, no, you now go private. But his thing is, no, the NHS is the NHS, and you stick with it. No, I've always, um, uh, self, I suppose, selfishly, if you think of the word, but... I'm not going to give up things that I don't totally believe will work anyway. I've been, like, I've had private coverage for uh, uh, medical things since I was, since I could afford it. I understand the Tory idea that if you let the rich people be rich and do what they can because they're clever with money, it will drizzle down to the people. I can see that that doesn't work. Yeah. On the other hand, I think to try and flatten everything out, and even I now don't believe in really closing private schools 
because if you do that, everybody's going to lose out. Because when I was young, the, what socialism was that was in me was that I wanted the working class to be lifted up, I suppose, to the middle class, to have the chance of knowing about the arts, having a lot more education. And that isn't how. What's happened is that the working class have pulled the middle classes down mm. and now everybody watches shit on the telly and because it is shit now. And instead of, you know, in the, when telly started, there was classics on there, but now we do the will of the people and the will of the people are reality shows. So I feel that what, I expected with us all to vote socialist and we'd all have, to my mind, better lives, obviously not to everybody else's. Democracy has meant that you pull down the people with more money. So there are a few elite people with loads and loads and loads of money and not much taste. Mm because they're all the new money and and then a wandering about upper class that doesn't quite know what it's doing <laughs> and I wouldn't want to be in that under any circumstances no. I feel uncomfortable and I I, I mean I they're boring yeah. <laughs> they're boring and and then there's this mass of us that are the middle class and lower class that have sort of all got mixed up together and and we're all watching I'm a celebrity get me out yeah. of the jungle yeah <laughs> and I didn't expect that I thought we'd all be watching I don't know much ado about nothing on or something or, or at least good modern plays good yeah. something good but it hardly ever happens on there now when I think of the fabulous plays I did on TV and uh, there's nothing and TV is the main thing and everybody's on their phones and social media has happened again and now, you know, everybody's terrified of putting their foot in at about anything. So it's um, it, it saddened me what's happened to the... I, I, don't want to, I don't want to upset young people because they've all got... No, but, but, but to me, and that's just natural because I'm old, because I'm old, I think naturally nature is very kind to you and does make you begin to feel the world is not all that great. Mm. I think that's nature does. So, so when I have a thought like that, I thought, yeah, you might be thinking that, but a lot of young people having a wonderful time. So, so you think nature does it to make you want to, to not say, live much yeah, longer? Absolutely. Well, that's interesting. I, I think nature is actually terribly kind. Um, Don't and, you feel fed up? Yeah. And I, I know if if you're allowed to live a full life, and let's face it, if I died tomorrow, I would go, I'd have lived a very long life, at eighty eight. So, um, it's it's saying to you, come on, you don't really want to stay at this party any longer, do you? <laughs> I always think of life as a party, <laughs> and I mean I don't like parties actually, but I do <laughs> I, I I do mean a good, I mean, where are things happening? This is this is where everything's happening. And I, 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 I think nature is 
if you don't rail against it, if you don't rail it and just think, oh, well, that's what's happened now. Do you think about God much? God? Yes. No, I don't think about God. Thinking about, just thinking about much. I don't think mortality. About, I'm now cold, I'm sorry. Um, I don't think, of, I think about mortality every five minutes. Um, <laughs> I remember somebody saying to Arthur Miller once, when he was about 80-something, do you ever think about death? He said, oh, only every 10 minutes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you do think of it, you can't help but think about it. It's round you all the time. Like every phone call is somebody who's dying or about to die, you know. Um, you are surrounded by it. And that's, that's where grandchildren come in very handy because they're not that group and then you, you see them and you cheer up. But I do have young friends, so yeah. so I so I don't only have those tales. But um, and I loathe. I'm trying to say to people now. I said my brother's ninety three, and he's the only member of the family I I talk to. Um, he because he finally came to see me in the theatre. Um, but he, uh, I say to him, I don't want to hear what's wrong with you. It's horrible of me, but only if it's something dramatic. No, quite right. Um, I don't want to hear a list of ailments. And you keep working, which keeps you at the party. That's right. That's right. I mean, I know that one day I'll have to give a dose, and who knows, I might collapse on this plane next year and say it's no use I can't remember that I'm back learning the lines and I've got f four months to go before I have to do it um, but that is the only way to do it you do it and, and do it every week yourself and then you have to try and remain open to all the different ways they're going to everybody's going to want you to do it but I'm really glad I'm doing it I have to do it with three people who are... They all have to be under 30. I was very religious when I was young. Teenagers, years, but those are years. But that's when it's exciting and you want to, you know... I love a story in your book of you prostrate... prostrate. Yes. <laughs> take me, Lord. I mean, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful idea, isn't it? And I, I always cry at Christmas because it might be true. Over Christmas, I think it might be true. And a bit of a weep at Easter. Um, but then, between that, I think you're crazy. Yeah. Of course the scientists are right. There's nothing. There's a bit of me, I mean, I'm, there's a bit of me that's really envious of Judy because of her Quakerism. I think it, it's a wonderful thing when you have a downer that if, if, you, if you're absolutely certain. Mm. But on the other hand... What do you want? You, no, you don't really believe you're going to see all the people you know in life again in some floaty nightgown. That's a, you know, <laughs> that is. I know that's an absurd thought, but on the other hand, I just say when when I have to put it down, I just say I'm an agnostic, and I do because I think. You cannot say for sure, no one can say for sure there is anything, and no one can say for sure there isn't any. I think you personally have a happier life if you have a belief. Mm -hmm. 
But on the other hand, I agree with my cousin that the world would be a happier place if there weren't any beliefs. Is it just our way of making us less frightened of dying? Is that all it is, ultimately? Well, is it that if it's just that, it's not worth it. I really think it would be better if there wasn't anything. But on the other hand, being old now and very, very stupid, I now am... I must be, I must be about to drop dead because I, I've been convinced in the last year or two that something is telling me what to do all the time. But that's probably, again, an old people thing. Nature, again, giving you a little something. Something being like a sort of guiding force of some kind. Yeah. What's a, with professional decisions or just, I mean... Anything, anything, almost anything. And I have a lot of symbols. If I don't see the heron out there, it's not that I'm miserable that day, but when I see the heron, it's a huge thing, as if somebody said to me, there you are, look what we've just given you. How great. And that, that, that is joyous. And then... Just... Um, and then I think... Well, you're going to be sad to say goodbye to that. Um, I don't know. I, I just honestly think that there's no point in any of us coming down definitely on any side in any way whatsoever. On anything. <laughs> on anything. I agree. On anything. I mean, rather than being an old, wise person and being able to tell the youth, all I can tell you is almost any idea you have you'll almost certainly think something else as you move life. So I, I just have learned absolutely nothing from being here, I don't think, except I did have a good time. Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. I'll be back in the new year with more interviews with remarkable octogenarians. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound production and original score. Until next time, goodbye.